Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ice hockey has long been the favorite pastime for local residents of Isanti, Minnesota. The small city sits just north of the state's larger city, Minneapolis. In the long, dark and cold months of winter, residents pack into the local ice rink to watch professional and junior hockey players take to the ice to compete. February 2019 was no different. This time, it was the turn of the juniors, and the local side were playing away in neighbouring Wisconsin, As the 12 young players from opposing teams glided onto the ice to contest for the puck, parents and local fans found a vantage point to watch. One of them was an ice-ante businessman called Jerry Westrom. He had arrived, like many in the ice rink, to watch his daughter play. It was a proud day for him. As he meandered his way through the crowd, many other parents stopped to greet him. Jerry was very well known in the Isanti community. He was a respected, affable and admired family man. As the match began, the greetings and small talk about the week just passed turned to discussions about ice hockey. The small crowd were experts and they discussed tactics with a keen enthusiasm. As the play settled in the first period of the match, Jerry felt peckish. He decided to nip to the concession stand to see what was on offer. He chose the American classic, a hot dog, generously covered in mustard and ketchup. He paid up and made his way back to his seat. As he chewed down on the snack, some of the sauce missed Jerry's mouth. 
He grabbed the brown napkin that came with his hot dog and wiped clean his upper lip, making sure to get all the sauce. Naturally, he tossed the used napkin in a nearby trash can. He thought nothing of it. There was no way he could have known that his discarded used napkin would become the smoking gun in a reinvestigation into an unsolved murder from 25 years before. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun. The Hot Dog Napkin. It's 1993, and the scorching summer sun is beating down on the 3100 block of apartments on Pillsbury Avenue in Minneapolis, promising a pleasant Sunday afternoon for residents. But what awaited them was far from peaceful. A strange sound woke one of the occupants, and as she stumbled out of bed, she realised that water was seeping under her front door and into her apartment. Panicked, she called property management, who quickly dispatched a caretaker to investigate. One soon arrived, slightly out of breath. He noticed the entire landing was covered in water. It seemed to be coming from another apartment, one he knew was owned by a man called Arthur Gray. He knocked and waited, but nobody answered. On his belt was a set of master keys. As he carefully flicked through them, more and more water made its way out from underneath the door. Finally, he found the right key. As the door swung open, the residents crowded outside saw something much more worrying than flood damage. Mixed into the pool of water was a liquid that looked like blood. The caretaker immediately called his supervisors. When they entered the apartment, they quickly resolved where the water was coming from, a running shower. As they made their way into the bedroom, though, they made a shocking discovery. Lying still was the deceased body of a young woman she'd been stabbed dozens of times. Officers from the Minneapolis Police Department sped down Pillsbury Avenue in their Ford Interceptor. As they arrived at the scene, they were greeted by a growing crowd of concerned residents. Once inside the now taped-off apartment, the team of officers began a murder investigation. 
they took the woman's body to a nearby medical examiner. There, on the autopsy table, they were able to identify the victim. 35-year-old Jeannie Ann Childs. Jeannie Ann Childs had a troubled life. At the age of just 11, she had dropped out of school. Jeannie had grown up in the small city of Isanti, just north of Minneapolis, with her loving mum, Betty Eekman. But the murder of her stepdad in 1971 set in motion a drug habit that would consume her. She ran away from home often. By her late teens, Jeannie had moved out for good. The permanency of her departure was not matched by steady living conditions. She bounced from one property to another in South Minneapolis, trying to make ends meet. Her burgeoning dependency on drugs was funded by prostitution. Jeannie had met a man called Arthur Gray years later. He'd quickly become her boyfriend and pimp. She would use his apartment for meetings with customers. In 1993, detectives arrived at that same apartment to begin the painstaking process of finding Jeannie's killer. Jeannie's body had made its way in the back of a private ambulance down West 62nd Street to the Hennepin County Medical Office. Once there, the resident forensic pathologist began to examine her body for clues. He didn't have to look hard. The evaluation located 17 superficial cuts to Jeannie's abdomen, as well as one large cut that exposed her intestines. Seven superficial cuts were found on her neck and stab wounds were also observed on her chest, back, arms, hands and buttocks. Her death was determined to be as a result of homicide caused by multiple sharp force trauma to the chest. It was further submitted that a number of wounds were inflicted after Jeannie had died. It was now the job of detectives to work out who could have been responsible for such a vicious killing. Forensic investigators were brought in from the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. They donned their white coveralls and scoured the apartment on all fours for any clues. Anything they did find was carefully bagged up. Anything and everything that could point to a suspect. That included a quilt that was covered in blood, plus a towel, a washcloth and a t-shirt. Blood was photographed to try to pinpoint where Jeannie had been attacked and the sequence of the events. In the adjoining bathroom, detectives spotted a blood stain on the sink. A sample was swabbed and sent, along with other items, for analysis. DNA profiling was first proposed by Sir Alec Jeffries in 1984, when he found that individuals could be differentiated on the basis of readily detectable differences in their DNA. The detectives in Jeannie's case were looking for a sample of DNA from someone other than the victim and ideally, somebody whose DNA was present without a reasonable explanation. Deep within the labs of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, the forensic testing on the samples collected got underway. The first step was to extract DNA from the sample. 
This involved breaking down the cell walls and membranes to release the DNA. The next step was to amplify the target DNA sequences using a technique called polymerase chain reaction, or PCR for short. PCR involves a series of heating and cooling cycles that cause the DNA to denature or separate into single strands, bind to primers and synthesize new DNA strands. By repeating these cycles, the target DNA is amplified to maximize success for analysis and subsequent matching. Considering Jeannie's profession as a sex worker, investigators weren't surprised to find many different male individuals had left traces of DNA at the scene. The next job was to see if any of those profiles were already known and could identify potential suspects. One by one, the detectives entered the samples into their DNA database. Each time, nothing. Except one. DNA from Jeannie's boyfriend, Arthur, was found. This was perhaps to be expected, and he'd already been spoken to as a matter of routine, and he had an alibi. News of Jeannie's murder hadn't spread far. The press at the time didn't seem interested enough to cover it in great detail. Jeannie's choice of career meant, in the eyes of the media, she wasn't worth the column inches. And it was, according to police at the time, a horribly difficult case. There was no direct evidence, no witness to the crime, and the fact that her work meant that she could have crossed paths with anyone made investigating the murder that much more complicated. Days turned to weeks, weeks to months, and months to years. Despite keeping and storing potentially vital evidence taken from the crime scene, eventually the case went cold. Jeannie's mother, Betty, was left in a torturous position, helpless to get closure and vulnerable to replaying the event over and over every day, cycling through endless possible scenarios. But Betty was determined. She felt she could not allow her daughter's killer to get away with it. For decades, she continued to press Minneapolis PD into reopening the case, calling often and sending letters. She rallied support in the community, and in 2015, her pressure looked like it might pay off. Betty's continued persistence had occurred at the same time major advances were made in DNA testing. Minneapolis PD decided to revive the case. It was assigned to Police Sergeant Christopher Caracostas and FBI Special Agent Christopher Bokers. They were two long-serving and unrelenting investigators, and if anyone could make a breakthrough in the case, it would be them. Their first port of call was to check the DNA database again. After over 20 years, surely some of the men who had been in that property would have been caught committing another crime and been added to the database. There was a chance they would now get a match where before they had not. But still, there was nothing. The two detectives sat in a conference room discussing where to turn next. They mulled the case over and flicked through the national news. There, in one of the papers, was a report of a pioneering piece of policing that had been done to catch an infamous serial killer. 
They read on as the article detailed how the FBI's Stephen Kramer, who was pursuing the elusive Golden State Killer, had used online genealogical sites to find a DNA match. For more than four decades, Joseph James D'Angelo had escaped justice. That's it, thought Sergeant Caracostas. As they slurped their coffee, the two detectives agreed that they should, at the very least, try to use a similar approach in the cold case of Jeannie Childs. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Stephen Kramer was at his desk at the FBI offices in Wilshire Boulevard, Los Angeles. He was just closing up a case he'd been working on for months when the phone rang. It was the end of a long day, and he thought it could be journalists. He'd become used to the press calling to ask about his work on the Golden State killer case. But this time, it was not the media. Down the line were Sergeant Karakostas and Special Agent Boykers. They took it in turns to explain the case they were reinvestigating. They wanted to know about the possibility of utilising forensic genetic genealogy in the Genie Child's homicide case. They needed Kramer's help. Special Agent Kramer thought the plan was a good one. Karakostas got moving. He went back into the file from the 1993 investigation into Jeannie's murder. There, he honed in on one particular sample, taken from the quilt at the crime scene. He then sent the sample to DNA Solutions, a private laboratory working out of Oklahoma City. Dr. Valerie Matimore-Fuller and her team of experts in Oklahoma started to analyse the crime scene sample. 
they found a DNA single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNP. One very obvious abnormality that would easily enable a match should they find something for comparison. That DNA SNP then had to be uploaded to a website called GEDmatch, which pools results from various genealogy DNA tests. But the two Minneapolis detectives had no experience of such an investigation. Special Agent Kramer had a contact. He connected them with Barbara Ray Venter, a self-taught, dogged genetic genealogist. Barbara had been instrumental in the development of investigative genetic genealogy. After retiring from a career as a biotechnology patent lawyer, she took up a hobby. By no means was Barbara a typical amateur internet sleuth, though. She had vast relevant experience and knowledge. She'd gained a PhD in biology, and after she retired, she volunteered for an organisation that helps adoptees find their birth relatives. But enforcement was something she had never dealt with. A few years earlier, when the FBI came calling, asking if her work could help them identify the Golden State Killer, Barbara assured them it could. Then, over the course of four and a half months, the team painstakingly pursued the strategy she laid out for them. With Barbara's guidance, they ultimately identified the suspected Golden State Killer as Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. Would the same approach work in the investigation into Jeannie Child's murder? Betty's unassailable persistence had occurred at the same time major advances were made in DNA testing. And the fact that her work meant she could have crossed paths with anyone made investigating the murder that much more complicated. In September 2018, the team edged ever closer to a breakthrough. Sergeant Caracostas sat at his desk and opened his laptop, forwarding an email he'd just received. As soon as the notification came through on Barbara's computer, she set to work analysing the DNA, utilising every tool at her disposal on jedmatch.com to search for a match to the unknown crime scene sample. She was able to uncover the likely eye colour, genetic admixture and ethnicity of the DNA source. More clues as to who the killer might be. But despite this new information, the search proved fruitless. No close enough matches were found to generate any new investigative leads. The team debriefed. There was another option, Barbara explained. Other genealogy sites that don't typically allow law enforcement to use their services. They could try those, just to see what came up. The detectives agreed. They felt their mission was so important that a court would understand. Sat back in front of her computer, Barbara uploaded the DNA data file to a few different websites, including Family Tree DNA and MyHeritage. She made it appear as if she was just a regular member of the public, looking into her family tree. Then, on January the 2nd, 2019, a breakthrough. A profile on MyHeritage belonging to a Gary Lee Williams 
was identified as a close genetic match to the crime scene DNA sample. Gary, at some point, had uploaded his DNA to the site while tracing his own family tree. He didn't know that by doing so, he was going to plant the breadcrumbs that kicked a cold case into motion. The match the detectives landed on was close, but not exact. Gary hadn't been in that apartment. He wasn't the killer. But the DNA sample taken from the crime scene could have come from a relative of Gary's. Barbara determined that it was likely to be a first cousin once removed. So the task now was to identify Gary Williams's extended family. Barbara built up a family tree for Williams and sought to work out which members of his family would have been in or around Minneapolis in the 1990s. Only two names matched. Two who had lived in the state around the time of the murder. After ruling out one family member, the police were left with just one name. Jerry Westrom. Jerry Westrom was born on November 26, 1961, and raised in the Minneapolis area. He was a driven young man from a supportive family. He completed high school and graduated with a degree in business administration at Metropolitan State University. After college, Jerry tried his hand at various roles in the business world, working as a sales rep, driving across the state door to door, then as a consultant, and he built his name as a prominent and active member of the church and local political scene in his hometown of Isanti, a small city just north of Minneapolis. When his name came back from the police's genealogy investigation, it seemed like a mistake. Sergeant Caracostas and Special Agent Boykers weren't expecting a known criminal, as his DNA wasn't on the database. But the seemingly upstanding citizen certainly threw them somewhat. As they dug, though, they discovered appearances were slightly deceiving. Westrom's criminal record made its way across Caracustus's desk. He opened the file. It turned out Jerry's personal life was marred by a series of legal issues. He was arrested in the 1980s for soliciting prostitution and in 1991 for indecent exposure. He also faced a number of other minor charges over the years, including traffic violations and disorderly conduct. Crucially, they discovered that he had lived in the Minneapolis area from 1991 to late 93. It was nothing that hinted he was capable of murder, nor any evidence to actually link him to the crime scene. But it was interesting. They wanted a smoking gun. They needed a smoking gun. In February 2019, Jerry went to watch his daughter play junior league ice hockey in Wisconsin. Like every week, he was there showing his support for the local team. He took a seat, hot dog in hand, to watch the match. But as opposed to usual, he had two keen undercover officers watching every move he made. At this point, the officers had been trailing the hockey dad everywhere he went. 
They wanted to get an idea of his movements, and crucially, they were looking for evidence of a link to Jeannie Childs' murder over 25 years prior. As Westrom faced the ice rink, cheering on his daughter, the two detectives kept a keen eye on him. They obscured themselves among the crowd, making sure not to appear suspicious. As Jerry bit into his lukewarm hot dog, they spotted an opportunity. He wiped away the excess sauce with a napkin. He got up and tossed it in a nearby trash can. He was none the wiser, but this everyday action was being watched furtively from just metres away. Once Jerry was out of sight, the detective swooped in on the trash can. They carefully took the hot dog box with the napkin in it, bagged it up, and raced back to the Isanti police headquarters. Once there, they sent it to Minnesota's Bureau of Criminal Apprehension for analysis. If it was a match, they could directly link Jerry Westrom to the 1993 murder scene. If not, all their work would be wasted. They held their breath. Within hours of its collection, the seemingly inconsequential napkin, in Jerry's eyes at least, made its way from his hands to the laboratory of the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension and into the possession of their expert forensic scientists. In the early 2000s, more sensitive techniques were developed for analysing increasingly smaller traces of DNA left at the crime scene. These techniques can be used to analyse very small samples and to identify individuals who have only touched an object or surface but not left behind visible biological material, such as blood or semen. This DNA probably originates from cells that have previously broken down in the body. This DNA is then excreted through the sweat pores and is left on objects that are touched. The process of touch DNA analysis involves collecting a sample from the object or surface where touch DNA is suspected to be present. The sample may be collected using a swab or tape which is then processed to extract the DNA. Once the DNA is extracted, it's amplified using the PCR technique. He took a the seat, amplified DNA hot dog in is then analyzed to, to determine the, match, the DNA profile but as of the individual usual, who left the touch DNA. He had DNA two keen on the undercover officers surface. observing every move. When they did he this made. to the napkin recovered from the ice rink, they found it contained a mixture of DNA. However, the major male profile observed was consistent with DNA samples recovered from the 1993 crime scene. It was a major breakthrough. In February 2019, Jerry Westrom's mugshot appeared in the local press, to the shock of friends and neighbours. He was arrested on suspicion of murdering Jeannie Childs. Sergeant Karakostas and Special Agent Bokers just had time for a coffee and to run over their interview plan before making their way down the long corridor to the Minneapolis PD headquarters and into a small box room with a two-way mirror. Awaiting their arrival patiently, dressed all in black, was Jerry Westrom. As they entered, he stood up to greet them, apprehensively shaking hands and inquiring as to what was going on. The three middle-aged men sat around a small circular table as Jerry was told that the police had reason to believe he had been at the scene of a murder 25 years earlier. 
he appeared flabbergasted. No, he had not been to the apartment in question, he told the detectives. And no, he did not recognise the victim, Jeannie Childs. He insisted he had nothing to do with her murder. But the detectives took another swab of his DNA to confirm their findings from the napkin. Jerry Westrom's DNA was found to be a match to the sperm cell fraction sample recovered from the quilt from Jeannie's bed and the sperm cell fraction recovered from a bloody bathroom towel. Contrary to his denial, Jerry had been in the apartment. Of course, there could have been an innocent explanation for his presence there. The police needed to show he was there when the murder took place. For that, they had another key piece of evidence. At the scene, there were two distinct bloody bare footprints left. The detectives explained to Jerry that one was a certain match to his. Jerry Westrom was charged with the murder of Jeannie Childs. In late summer 2022, Westrom appeared at Hennepin County District Court to contest the charge. His defence admitted that the investigation into their client had invaded his constitutionally protected right to privacy by using the genealogy site and that all subsequent evidence gathered as a result should be thrown out by the court. But the court disagreed. They allowed the evidence to be heard. Jerry Westrom chose not to take the stand. After a short deliberation, the jury found him guilty of murder in the first degree. After the trial, the jury's foreperson explained to the gathered media he would have had to chase her around the apartment, stabbing her multiple times over and over again. He really wanted her to die. That's why it matters that it came up 30 years later. It was so brutal. It's so graphic. You can't just let this go. Jerry was sentenced to life in prison as he sat expressionless in the dock. He will be at least 86 years old before he can apply for parole. Jerry Westrom continues to maintain his innocence and his defence team say they look forward to the day he is exonerated. Jeannie Childs' mother, Betty, spoke to the court before Jerry's sentence was passed down. I've waited so many years to have this end, she said, and added, It's put my life through so much hell. I just really feel I'll never forget and love her the way I always did. Despite her troubles, Betty explained that Jeannie was a wonderful person. She had a big heart. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas, and develop the crime solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts.
If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just $3.99 per month.